I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think. I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day, I'm Mark Kenny, and this is Democracy Sausage, as you already know, of course. I'm from the Australian National University, as is this podcast. Comes out of Canberra each week. With me, as usual, is Dr. Maria Teflaga. She's a political scientist at the School of Politics and International Relations. She's also the director of the Australian Politics Studies Centre. Hi, Mara. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Now, this week we're going to focus on one of the big stories of the 2022 election, which of course is still playing out, the election of seven community independents to the House of Representatives, and indeed one to the Senate now that I think about it. A key figure in most of those was the business person, green energy advocate and political campaigner Simon Holmes Accord, who headed up the fundraising vehicle and funds Disperser Climate 200. He's written a book about that and revealing his own journey to the role, and it's called The Big Teal. It's part of the Monash University publishing series In the National Interest, and he joins us now. Welcome, Simon Holmes Court. Thanks, Mark, and thanks, Maria, for having me on the show. It's really, really great to talk to you, and uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating book, this, and uh, I'm really glad that you, that you wrote it because some of us in the, uh, in the sort of scholarly and journalistic community watched the advent of these uh, these community candidates which i think is a, a sort of a broadly speaking a good name for them uh with uh, what's the development of it with a great deal of interest and 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 some others watched it with a very withering and dismissive eye and perhaps were completely surprised about then what happened and i guess we'll we'll get into that but you know the name teals community independence voices of they had a lot of names there's no doubt about that you've obviously decided to for the purposes of simplicity i guess just go with uh, with the, the the big teal as the title and i i start the first chapter talking about that that label that that label only really stuck i looked back at, at google trends and and found that the label the label was pretty much unused before before april of of uh, the election year so it was only in the last six weeks that, 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 that the media landed on that term. And you make the point that, in fact, 
a lot of political movements have been uh, have used colours in the past as a as an identifier. If we think about the Greens, or we think about blue for the Liberals, or red for Labour, or you know. Uh, brown for fascism in in uh, Germany uh, colors have often been used haven't they yes and and yeah, every, every campaign needs a t-shirt uh, if you go out and <laughs> and uh, look at the t-shirt colors many in fact all, all the good ones and some of the bad ones have been have been taken you know, you're not spoiled for choice but there was actually quite a lot of diversity in the in the colors used by the movement we saw orange uh, uh, navy uh, various shades of turquoise, cyan, etc. I don't think anyone actually had teal. There, there was a sort of notion that they were all running under the same colour, but really teal was a term, I, I, I think, and I expand in, in the book, that better captures the, the politics that uh, you know, of, of being a bit blue uh, and a bit green. So ec- economically sensible, I guess, is how some would say it, but, uh, but passionate about climate and environment. So somewhere between the two. So I think the, the colour quite colour works, but there is a lot of discussion amongst the community independence movement whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's, as soon as you put a colour, people tend to associate them and imagine that they're a homogenous group, which they're certainly not. But uh, I've made peace with the term, and I think many in the movement have. I think that's a good way of putting it, Mara. It's a it's a good point, isn't it? That uh, these colours get used and they become these kind of unifying uh, identifiers, but it presented a problem for a bunch of people who were saying they were independent and who were denying this narrative that they were a party of some sort and that, that it was some sort of there was something disingenuous that they were pretending to be independents, but they were in fact you know coordinated in a whole range of ways. Well, I mean, I think that really just spoke to a great deal of envy on the part of uh, the the major parties in their the the sort of energy that sort of swelled up around these independent campaigns, uh, some of which, uh, as you kind of point out in the book, Simon, it wasn't the first time that a, that a campaign such as this had been run in that local area, and that you know it seemed like the 2022 election cycle really kind of harnessed, uh, you know, a wave of energy that was ready to kind of bring forth and that it's kind of interesting that what you were able to do with with Climate 200 was essentially, I I guess, like sort of harness that and and sort of supercharge it. And I thought it was really interesting in the book that you talk about Emily's List being like a model for you. How, How did you come across that model? Was that something that you were kind of aware of or was that something that someone brought to you as a way to sort of think about, uh, you know, supercharging these kinds of movements? Well, I was very, very much inspired by Professor Lawrence Lessig, law professor, was at Stanford, now at Harvard, who gave a series of talks uh, about the need for democratic revival in the US and paradoxically the the need to take money out of politics. He, he gave uh, a, a series of talks and there's, there's a, you know, culminating in a, in a fantastic TED talk that's definitely worth worth watching. And he ran in, I think, 2012, a, he put together a political action committee, the May Day PAC, which, uh, which aimed to support, I think, about eight candidates who were running on integrity platforms. I, I really like the way he puts it. He says that every, everyone who's passionate for change has a primary purpose. It might be, some might be um, extremely keen on climate action as, as I am. Uh, others, their primary pur- purpose might be medical research or Indigenous reconciliation or education, etc., um, or the arts. Um, every, you know, everyone might have a, everyone has some kind of primary passion. 
but we'll all experience that these great great ideas or obvious pathways that are backed by policy backed by so evidence-based policies uh, backed by science etc taken to parliament and then roundly rejected so those those of us who have, you know, many of us have this model that governments are always on the hunt for good ideas and will and will implement them as soon as they understand the facts but too often the ideas get rejected because vested interests are controlling too much of our political system so lessig makes the case that democratic reform or de- de- you know, restoration of our democratic ideals might not be the biggest problem or might not seem like the biggest problem, but it's the first problem that we have to fix our ailing democracy before any of us are going to get progress on our primary purpose. I was very inspired by this and inspired by his work. I was aware of Emily's list. Um, The more I started scratching the surface, I saw that you really need to uh, invest time, effort, money into, into nurturing democracy if if we are going to rescue uh the democracy in, w- in which we all live it's a, it's a good message uh i i must say i wrote a fair bit about this in the lead up to the election you know it seemed to me the big story was being somewhat studiously avoided by many political journalists that the liberal party the governing party for you know uh, nine years was in deep trouble in its own heartland that it was under attack really electoral attack from its own base. This is an extraordinary development in Australian politics uh, and and I suppose much, much easier to talk about in hindsight now that we've seen how spectacularly successful it was. But even, even at the time, even before the election, you could see there was serious momentum behind this. You know, you just had to uh, see the vision of the various campaign functions, stump speeches and so forth. And the number of people wearing, as you mentioned, Simon, you know, the T-shirts uh, of these various uh, various candidates, whether it be Sophie Scomps or, or, or Zoe Daniel or whoever it might be, Monique Ryan. I mean, they had vast numbers of, of, of volunteers, of people who had actively joined the process and you could see that even if they fell short in in these seats this was a pretty big phenomenon mm. um why why did it happen i mean what why why was the the liberal party under such assault from people who had habitually much like yourself i suspect and correct me if i'm wrong here but who had habitually been you know part of the liberal base well, a lot of threads came together for for this movement, and it really, it, you know, it, it absolutely didn't start with with, with Climate Two Hundred. It didn't didn't start with me, and it's a big big part of the book is me explaining how we were just a cog in a machine that started long before we came we came to town. It probably goes back to a very good place to start is the election of Kathy McGowan in in twenty twenty twelve. Oh, so twenty thirteen, they they put together their um. Uh, their plan in in 2012. So we, we, we're a decade into this movement. Yeah, that, so that's the knockoff uh, Sophie Mirabella in Indi in the, the Victorian uh, region. Yeah, so, yeah, but it was more than it, it, see that that's I guess the sort of traditional. Um, well, I mean, I mean that it, was the result of it. That anyway, was the result, was, yeah. right? But yeah. but it was grounded in a community that felt it had been taken for granted, uh, and it was it was a very safe seat. Uh, so. If you look at any of the metrics of, of government investment in the area, it had been taken for granted, and it was was a, a group that wanted to reclaim from the centre, you know, nonpartisan 
uh, you know, a, a non-partisan group that wanted wanted local local representation. So indep- independents are not new at, at all in Australia. We've had lots of independents challenge every election, and it's you know it's, it's always a little bit sad when you, you see so many independents stand up that that might only get three hundred votes. Uh, the, the the playing field has been very much tipped against independents. You know, very few have been successful. But what makes this movement different is it's not candidate-led but community-led. So, you know, almost none of these independents woke up one morning and thought or, or had a lifelong passion that they wanted to run for politics. They were scouted by community groups who ran, you know, these, these um, massive community pre-selection processes that, and when I say massive, they drew from thousands of people in the electorate rather than the normal political pre-selection processes that just draw, draw from half a dozen people who have done their time. So, Simon, can I ask, you know, I mean, that process, right, which is very different from how a political party would select a candidate, which would, you know, draw from its membership base, people who have served the party for several years, not always, but often, in some capacity, uh, potentially worked as a professionalised sort of staffer and have, you know, invested time and effort in building patronage networks that allow them to sort of have, you know, the right skill sets, the right networks, and the sort of the, the right kind of bona fides to, to sort of look like a, a, an ideal candidate. You know, that's a very different process from what you're describing here. And, and one that I, I would imagine is probably far more attractive to women. And, and a vast majority of these candidates did prove to be um, women. So could you kind of enlighten us a little bit more about that? Well, for, yeah, you, you, your point about women is very, very interesting. Whenever I've Talk to these the community groups, or whether it's the the voices of groups, which are not quite the same as um, the independence movement, but they're an important precursor to it. W- whenever I talk to those groups, or um, meet with campaign teams, or you know, groups of volunteers, they're overwhelmingly women. Um, I'd say 75-80% of people in the movement are, are women, and part of that um, I think goes back to so many. So many Australians and almost all women were, uh, were, were somewhere between completely, you know, unedified to white hot in anger about a- the- Appalled. Let's, let's call them appalled. I mean- Appalled. Yeah. Um, about the, yeah, the, the, the events of 2021, um, yeah, the, the, the long run of revelations of, um, uh, yeah, of, it's hard to find a term that, um, that, that, that is not understating it, but, but it's very serious allegations of, um, uh, of, of sexual assault and, and, um, very bad treatment of, of some very prominent women. And the, the government's incredibly tone deaf, uh, ineffective handling of those that, that activated a huge number of people. But there is also, I, I think, you know, with, without those events, even before then, the movement was heavily skewed towards women, and partly that is in our in our communities. Every community activity, um, you know, you, you go go to a, the, the school fete or the um, town um, New Year's Eve celebrations. Uh, I can think of all you know, and community groups that I've been involved with, and the, it's it's the women who roll up the sleeves and get things get things done, um, often without any expectation of any any credit or promotion, career promotion through it. They just get get stuff done in our community. 
And I, Monique Ryan mentioned in her first first interview, she said that, that something happens when a, when a woman gets to her 50s, when she sees a problem, she she looks at it and goes, just give it to me, just give it to me and I'll fix it. And I've just met so many amazing strong women through this process who have got to that stage in life where they're financially secure uh, and they uh, have just had enough and they just want to roll their sleeves up and get involved and do stuff. And I think this movement, a number of other things came together, but this movement has given a very viable pathway for particularly women um, who would have no time for the the, the sort of party and branch machinations and the 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 years of working as a staffer and, and compromising one's values to come up through a party system. There there are so few Australians of uh, accomplished Australians who have any time or any interest in that, but this model provides them a very clear and rewarding path to serve serve the nation as a politician it, it does do that and it's interesting we'll, we'll come back in a second we'll take a break and we'll come back and talk about that because it's a really interesting dimension it, it does provide that uh, alternative way of getting into uh, you know doing public good uh, but it itself represents a feminization of politics as well it, in terms of those uh, structures the, the the grassroots nature of the way it's organized and the way it it represents a rejection of that sort of uh, bruising, ego-driven male machine politics that largely the parties evince because the parties are largely controlled by men. We'll come back and talk about that in just a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening, of course, to Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny. I'm joined by Maria Teflaga and Simon Holmesacourt. And Simon, you were just talking before about the the responding to Maria's question about the sort of uh, role of women in the, the prominence of women in this whole movement. I noticed one of the things that you say in your book, incidentally, is a reflection on the fact that you had a very famous father. He was sometimes described as Australia's first billionaire, but your mother then doesn't get mentioned by people, even though she went on and played a very strong role in business for a long time after that. Can you just give us a little sense of, of that? Yeah, it's funny how the 
the media still defines me. There's a, there's an article in the, the Financial Review that defines me. You know, son of son of Australia's first billionaire. You know, my, my my father had a had a big career, but finished. You know, that career finished. Uh, you know, suddenly and tragically uh, with with his death 33 years ago. Uh, my mother's had a very long career of public service uh, of of business. She's um, got. You know, an, an incredible resume, and uh, is you know is 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 you know, quite, I think, uh, you know, quite widely recognised as 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 a uh, very accomplished Australian. But but she's written out of the narrative. Um, the media, I, I think, the a, a lot of the media felt a need to present me as some kind of backroom puppet master. Um, uh, you know, sitting sitting in a swivel chair with a hairless cat uh you know masterminding <laughs> masterminding and, and that and that played well to write my mother out of that it, it, yes it, it did and but it also i mean i'm glad you, you make that point because that's the sense i had through a lot of the criticism that was coming toward the community independence be interested in your thoughts about this too mara but the sense i had that a lot of the criticism the different ways that the, the community candidates were being criticized often had this kind of uh, sort of gendered aspect to it, which was that they would do things like elevate your role as being some sort of puppet master, as you say, because that disempowered, that made these women seem like mere pawns, these these highly accomplished candidates who were were putting themselves forward in these unlikely contests and doing all this work and drumming up all this enthusiasm and pursuing local issues, and yet they were being sort of reduced to dupes in a process that was being run by this Svengali-like figure in the background who was who was Simon Holmes' court. Around about April, we ran a focus group to see how much these lines were were hurting us, and we we, we put put together a focus group of, of soft liberal voters, and, and we knew you know they were they were genuinely soft liberal. When you asked them who's the best prime minister Australia's ever had, and they would jump, jump straight into it was John Howard. And uh, they were fairly unanimous in in um, uh, being disgusted with the Morrison government. Um, they were a really interesting cohort. But we asked them, you know, what, firstly, what did you think? What do you think of Climate Two Hundred? And the answer was, never heard of it. Um, okay, there's this group that's supporting independent candidates so that there's a level playing field and they can run on on these. Um, you know, we, they've, they've, they're aligned on the values of climate action, integrity. And advancing gender equality in Australia. Uh, what do you think of an organisation that do that? And they said, and the focus group came back saying, "No, oh, it sounds like a really good idea." Then we we said, "Okay, what, what do you think about this idea that they're uh, they're stooges for Labor or um, or, or or Simon Holmes Accords um, pulling the strings in the background?" And one of the one of the comments I remember very very clearly was was um, someone said. Dr. Monique Ryan, the head of paediatric neurology at the Children's Hospital in Melbourne, why would she quit that job in order to, you know, to be a stooge for anybody? That just doesn't make sense. Uh, and and, and, and you know, the focus groups came back. They just they just weren't buying those attack lines. So I, you know, we, we didn't we didn't mind throughout the whole thing, but that the you know, the, the Let's let's be frank. That News Corp um, completely misinterpreted us. Uh, it, it gave, it, I think, it gave the movement strategic advantage that they 
overly focused on me. I became a lightning rod for criticism, but they were attacking me, not attacking the candidates. Um, we didn't mind that we were being misunderstood by News Corp. It was you know, sometimes a bit annoying and they tried to waste our time, but uh, it, it really wasn't resonating at the local level. And you can see that through the election results, just didn't resonate those attacks. Well, I mean, I think what is actually sort of really interesting about the um, independence movement is that it's, it is actually, you know, a re-engagement of civil society back into to politics. Like if, if we take a really long view of you know, how political uh, engagement has happened in this country and, and around the democratic world, politics was basically dominated by these types of independence, which which might be, you know, more or less actually like genuinely supported by their communities or not, you know, just due to the way um, electoral systems kind of operated. And that, you know, the rise of, of parties, you know, at first kind of effectively aggregated all of these like civil society groups and leagues and things like that into like big banners. And they kind of made these organisations really vibrant and rich and, you know, important sort of links between civil society and government because, you know, most people weren't really there for the politics they were there for the fate or the you know chicken soiree dinner <laughs> the fundraising events and and the ability for their their daughter to meet a, a nice uh, boy from the right kind of family because you know we're all at the the x function right um and and what has sort of happened with the professionalization of politics is it's sort of exactly what you've been saying simon right you know this hollowing out this the, you know an, an arrogance by by party elites and and a reduction of everything down into these sort of very zero sum kind of uh, discourse, right, around like, well, voters will be interested in this and voters won't be interested in that. Punters care about this. Punters care about that. You know, like even referring to them as punters is like is, is deeply sort of insulting. So it, it doesn't surprise me in the least that, you know, you, you've had those responses um, in your focus groups. And what I actually want to ask you is, you know, at the very end of the book, you start talking about how this movement has disrupted the, the political um, system. I've just given you like, you know, the brief history of how this has kind of actually operated. And so what has disruption from the coalface where you have been, what does that look like? Yeah, uh, well, I think a, a whole lot of threads had to come together to make it, make a community campaign viable. Um, the, 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 the talent's always been out there, but the, the mountain to climb to win has been so high that only a very few have had managed until recently to uh, to, to get in you know, to, to to compete again and successfully against against the party machines. Um, so a few things have, have happened there. There's been a uh, technology um, has finally come in and disrupted disrupted politics. That political parties are, are really great big organising machines, and the barriers to new groups to organise has been dramatically reduced through. Technology such as social media, Zoom. I can't can't sort of stress enough how big a, an impact it had on the movement. That prior to 2020, prior to the pandemic, only pretty strange people had had Zoom on their laptop. You either, you either had it because you're an academic and you needed it for um uh, for conferences, or some corporates used that, or some version like WebEx or whatever. But but not many citizens had teleconferencing software on their computer. And then all of a sudden, a month into the pandemic, every grandmother in Australia had had Zoom on some device so they could talk to their grandkids. Or yeah, we, we massively became networked, and that that allowed uh, you know, through twenty twenty one all around the country, 
almost every night there were there was a, some community democracy event happening on Zoom that we just could not have got together five years ago or even four years ago when 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 almost nobody had had that. Another big thing was the technology. Sorry, the the, the business model disruption that. You know, to, there are a lot of specialized skills that parties have in order to you know, organize uh, at the branch level all the way up to running election campaigns. Just like we've seen with so many so many industries, you, 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 if you put together in the technology space where I come from, if you put together a startup now, you'll start your company with a virtual CFO, uh, you'll, you'll use a, a, an outsourced marketing company, you'll use... Um, uh, you know, outsource almost everything. You won't have an IT department anymore. You would just bring in the services you need to run a successful startup company. Likewise with politics, you can now go out and find someone who understands political branding, someone who um, does you know, polling as a service. Uh, and All the services you need to put together a campaign are available. So we've had a business model disruption and technology disruption. But one of the one of the big, really big things I think is is what what I call, um, and I'm copying this phrase from Mike Cannon Brooks, but but lighthouses, and uh, Zali Stegel and Helen Haynes were the lighthouses for the community independence movement in the last parliament. They were uh, they they were outspoken. They drove big issues into the national spotlight and kept them there, and they provided. Uh, an example where people could look to them and go, I, I really like what I see there and I want one for my community. So those things coming together and, 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 you know, and there are other factors, um, you know, the, 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 the politics around climate, integrity and women of the last three years, all those came together for the movement. Yeah, it's really been a fascinating exercise in, in that uh, sort of rejuvenation of the democratic process, and it's interesting the point you make about how technology has been really instrumental in in facilitating that, in in allowing the multiple connections that are needed uh, in order to uh, get get collective a collective sentiment going within an electorate and a, and to give expression to simmering discontents that have been around for a long time I suppose but as you say political parties have largely had this game sewn up and they've largely had the media sewn up as well because most of the media seem to respond to these candidates as if they were in some way evidence of dysfunction when in fact it was quite the opposite uh, what they were trying mm. to do was 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 rest back democratic uh, representation from parties which had begun to act as if they were institutional pillars of it themselves, as if they were sort of natural owners of these of these uh, these seats, and in fact, I think I remember at one stage seeing um, Peter Credlin say, "By rights, the you know these seats are ours." <laughs> these seats um, by rights, yes. And it's funny that you mentioned John Howard being popular with a number of the people who ended up you know being uh, sympathetic with some of the aims of the community independence, because I think he was the one who used the term Labor groupies at one stage. Which I remember a chap stopped me in the street here in um, in Canberra and told me. Um, older than me even, and he told me that uh, he was deeply offended by that. He said, if you grew up in the 60s and 70s, being a groupie had a particular meaning. And, uh, you know, I sort of said, well, hopefully Howard didn't mean that particularly. But nonetheless, that kind of reductiveness went on. The other thing, of course, and this is, you know, underpinning all of this, is just the sheer enthusiasm that was around uh, around these candidates. You note in the book, Simon, that across 27 seats, uh, the independents 
uh, garnered more first preference votes than Clive Palmer did pretty much across the nation, which strikes me as a really good example of the difference between sort of quantity and quality, the difference between a deep engagement and investment from a community and just a kind of an advertising upchuck, you know. His his was sort of um, all cash and no cause, whereas the independents were, were very much about the cause and those campaigns could be very specific to each of those electorates as well as having those yeah. common themes. And almost everyone involved in the movement was, including myself, does, has no background in politics. Um, almost, um, you know, almost all the donors. So Climate 200 had 11,200 donors that you know, we were basically a crowdfunding campaign. Um, the vast majority of, of our donors had never made a political donation before. This, this is people who have been outside the system who have finally seen a pathway. And, and, and going, going back to that lighthouse, Kathy McGowan was the first lighthouse. And then when, when um, Zali Stegall showed that it can work outside of a, you know, of a rural electorate and Helen and Kathy just set such a great example. It, it and, became, and there'd been also Rebecca Sharkey in Mayo, and of course Karen Phelps for yes, a time. In, yes, let's not in forget Wentworth. Karen yeah. Phelps is um, yeah. that that was, that was a landmark. You know, people just could not imagine before. You know, not not long before they couldn't imagine that an independent could take could take Wentworth. Um, you know, so so once once people saw that it was possible, and there was infrastructure that they could get almost off the shelf that to to lower the barriers and replace so. Yeah, that each campaign has to basically form. You could say each campaign is almost like a micro party. They have to put together all the services that parties have to do, but the barriers of entry are so much lower. But yeah, one, one going back to the, the number of volunteers, one thing that stood out was just how much people enjoyed themselves. Um, the the volunteers absolutely loved it. Whereas, you know, on on pre poll, you know, the the uh, you know, folks from the opposing side were often, you know, on some kind of. You know, it looked like they're on some kind of death march, or um, you know, they, they were there because, I mean, you know, the, the sad thing is, in, you know, so many of the of, of the people wearing the uh, the t shirts for for the um, uh, for the opponents were 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 on the public payroll. Uh, they were staffers um, who were who were there because it's their job, and if they do it well enough, then they'll get promoted, and maybe one day they'll get pre-selected, and maybe one day they'll become a minister, etc. Or sometimes, presumably, they just had some of these simmering doubts themselves. They were still, still hanging in there, but perhaps were, you know, uh, it's always the case that those criticisms that hurt most are the ones that you know there's an element of truth in. And uh, there were, he was a government that had been basically doing nothing for nine years, and particularly in the climate space, which was something we haven't really talked about specifically, but uh, obviously a very big aspect of this whole thing. You know, there's the uh, discontent over uh, the role of treat- role and treatment of women in politics, um, the integrity question very big, and hopefully that is being resolved uh, now. But um, uh, the climate question as well, just, you know, a decade of denial effectively, and it was it really moved uh, a number of um, of professional people in these, uh, these particularly inner suburban seats that uh, had maybe always voted Liberal but just couldn't defend it anymore. Yeah, that was very much a lightning rod um, that, that activated activated so many that not, not only was the previous government doing um, 
so little, if if not destructive, on on climate um, climate. But anyone who scratched the surface would find that they were um, habitually lying about progress. That you know Australia wasn't making the progress. And I, yeah, I heard so many people found it became activated in the lead up to Glasgow last year when you know, Morrison thought he could put the climate issue to bed by uh, but by signing on to to net zero. But actually, it was the the um, the emptiness of that gesture that fired people up. So and he, and he was open. Reverse. He was open about how empty it was. He said he didn't have to change a single interim target or policy because we were getting there anyway, which most people saw, saw for yes, what it was. So he was he was guaranteeing that nothing that, that they weren't actually going to do anything. Um, yeah. So that that activated that activated a lot of people, and uh, they yeah. It, it, and I've been 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 fascinated. But watching how, um, how how the party is still still hasn't grappled the the, the the coalition still hasn't grappled with the messages in the losses of these seats about you know they're still tearing themselves apart about whether they went too far with net zero or not far enough um, and it, it seems like that's a big schism within the coalition that's going to take a while to resolve. Mara, what's your sense of, uh, just as a final question, because we're right out of time now, but what's your sense of uh, how significant this is? Is it like the 22 election result? Is it the high watermark? Will there be, will there be more? Will these, all of these independents hang in there? We don't know the answers to these things, but, but what's your sense of it? Oh, I do think this is actually a very important election. I, I'm very curious to see what will happen in Labor's traditional heartland seats in the sense that you know the 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 sort of mechanisms that are sort of that were driving the independent movements um are different but there are some commonalities uh, which do make it interesting and it it speaks to actually that there's a bigger thing going on here than a, a rejection of the parties. It's it's a sort of recognition and, and this happened in the late 70s and the early 80s that you know when politics is going wrong, citizens do really need to step back in. That they politicians can't be trusted actually to to be delegates and to do their job. You know they've sort of demonstrated that now over some some time now, but with a failure to act on many pressing public policy issues. And this is not an exclusive issue of just one side of politics as such. And so. You know, success breeds success, and so if I was a betting woman, which I am not, but I, I would say that we, we probably haven't seen the last of of these independents. But I, I imagine that some of these movements will, you know, some of these shifts will be noisy. I mean, for example, those seats won by the Greens in Brisbane, will the Greens hold those, or will you know a teal candidate? which might be a better fit for that electorate, I don't know. Um, perhaps we might see some more kind of action around that. Where do these seats go once these independents retire? Yes, there are many fascinating questions. Of course, some of the key issues that around which these most of these independents campaigned, uh, climate, integrity, uh, the, the role of women, some these things will have been substantially addressed by the change of government itself. And of course, as we've noted, that the, you know, they're overwhelmingly, they're, these are high-quality MPs now who are, you know, going to establish themselves very strongly uh, in their electorates. Whether that means they'll all hold on, uh, or, or all 
um, succeed in the long term, I guess that remains to be seen. But um, yes, it's a shifting game all the, all the time, and uh, we'll have to uh, watch with interest. And then, you know, Labor lost Fowler, of course, where they tried to sort of parachute in Christina Keneally in Western Sydney in that seat, and that didn't work. Uh, so there's a number of different ways, I guess, that the parties may find themselves needing to be much more sensitive to local electoral sentiment than uh, than they perhaps have been used to being in the past. Yeah, they might have to do their job. <laughs> That's right. They might have to actually be deeply engaged in the communities they seek to represent. What a uh, what a development that would be. Uh, Simon Holmes, of course, thanks so much for uh, for writing this book, uh, The Big Teal, and for coming in and talking to us today. This million things we could talk about in terms of the funding and that but i hope we've got some sense of uh, of of the issues thank you well we yeah we think we think our job is 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 not done uh, obviously we'd like to see each of these independents uh that, that got up re-elected in the next election and there's there, there's you know some conventional wisdom that independents are pretty good at holding on once they're in history history shows that but um we we're getting approached by lots of other communities that are interested in the model uh, and we're, we're helping build capacity in those communities. So I think we'll see, you know, we'll be doing every bit we can to move the move, you know, help the movement succeed at the next election. So Climate so climate 200 continues on. It will continue to uh, try and become a, a sort of a funding vehicle for these uh, movements? Absolutely. And just taking, you know, just take one issue on, on, on climate, you know, we have moved a, a fair way in in the narrative uh, in the public discussion. Um, you know, it's quite a few a breath of fresh air. But we're you know, we're still in Australia that is that is you know doubling down on on uh, fossil fuel extraction, and it's still uh, not not a topic that you can bring up in polite political company about about uh, ending the expansion of that industry. So we've got a long way to go before before Australia is really taking its climate responsibility seriously. And I think a lot of Australians know that. So we're going to keep going. Well, there you are. You have that warning, major parties, Labor government. Uh, it's not over yet. That, But this is, unfortunately, uh, Democracy Sausage for this week. Uh, thanks, Mara. Thank you. And thanks, Simon. Thanks a lot. Uh, Democracy Sausage from Australian National University. We'll be back next week. Until then, bye for now. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.